Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Quote, I'm totally worn out. I'm working 10 to 12 hour days and sometimes 11 hour days and I'm not sleeping well and I got bags under my eyes and I'm 80 years old and the more I work the more the people complain and all day long it's just murmur, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble and I'm sick of it and I'm utterly worn out and I can't keep this up so just kill me now and put me out of my misery. Close quote. I'm not quoting myself. You may have noticed I said somewhere in there, I'm 80 years old, and maybe that's a clue to, I'm quoting what maybe was being thought by Moses in this story. We are looking at Numbers chapter 11, and this story falls somewhere between the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and the entrance of the people of God into the Holy Land, that 40-year period called the wandering in the wilderness. And so Moses might be 80, might be 90, might be 100. But in any case, he's not doing well. He's about ready to have a nervous breakdown. In one telling of the story, his father Jethro says, delegate. In this story that we have today, God himself comes along and says, you need to delegate. And so they select 70, what one commentator calls seasoned assistants, six from each of the 12 tribes. There's fair hearing. And these assistants are going to do and carry the load of Moses. You know, since Moses gave the law, he had to sit in judgment because this family said this and this family said this and which one am I going to go along with? Now that may have been workable with a few thousand people, but Israel at this stage is in the hundreds of thousands and it was more than Moses could do. So now he has 70, maybe 72 assistants. They're going to carry the load and then judgments they can't decide upon rise and go to the Supreme Court, which is to say Moses himself. So they select these 72 people and it's decided they will have a public demonstration in which these people are commissioned and authorized by Moses and also an inwardly anointing and equipping by God. This is to show that Moses approves and also that God himself approves. And so they come up to the tent of the meeting. Now I know that most people aren't acquainted with the tent of the meeting. There's really three parts to this. There's the big open space called the tent of the meeting. There is then more inward, the holies. This is where they have the daily sacrifices. And then beyond the holies is the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, and the Ten Commandments, and the Staff of Moses, and a jar of the, of the manna. Now, my concern here is with the tent of the meeting. Uh, don't quote me exactly, but I'm pretty close. It would be about half again as wide as this church is, and about twice as long, so picture that. And they get these 70 people who were registered to have the Spirit anoint them. And God says, I will take of the Spirit on Moses, and I will put it on each of these people without any diminution going to Moses. And then 
they will be publicly commissioned. And they were. Oh my goodness, what an extravaganza time in the Holy Spirit this was. They were prophesying. All the commentators said they were certainly speaking in tongues. They were announcing the goodness and the glory of God. And the assemblies of God never had an extravaganza like this one. It was all going to plan until... It was discovered two fellows who were supposed to be there weren't there. Their names were in the bulletin, but they weren't in the tent of the meeting. They were down in the camp. Now, whenever they moved someplace, the tent of the Lord was always high where everybody could look up and see it. But on this occasion, two fellows, Medad and Eldad, were down in the camp. We don't know why they were there. We don't know why they missed things. It may have been their fault may have been somebody else's fault. It may have been nobody's fault. But they weren't in the tent of the meeting. They were in the camp. And what happened? The Spirit of God fell on them. And they were prophesying in the camp. Now we're told that some unknown person, he's not named, sees this, hears this, and goes tootling up to the tent of the meeting and peeks in and says, Moses, Eldad and me, Dad, are speaking in tongues. They're down in the camp. What do you think about that? Now, we don't know what this guy's name was. Uh, so let me give him a name. Let's call him Tattletale. <laughs> and not only does he tell Moses, but Joshua hears this. And Joshua is the number two guy to Moses. Joshua, almost from the beginning, has been the aide-de-camp to Moses. They went to war together. He assisted him. He traveled with him. He was his number two guy. When Moses dies, he becomes the number one guy. But on this occasion, Joshua, normally a good guy, but on this occasion, Joshua turns to Moses and he says, My Lord Moses, make them stop. And he wants to close it down. And Moses speaks these incredibly generous words. He says, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people were prophets. And the Lord would put his spirit on them all. You see, Joshua is focused on the protocol. Joshua is focused on this prestige of Moses as the leader. Moses is focused on something much bigger. He's focused on the kingdom of God. He has the big picture. And the people are going to be blessed because of these 70, but also because of Eldad and Medad. That's his focus. But there's always people. It was then, it's true today. There's always people who get focused on some little narrow bylaw or byword along the way. Actually, that spirit would be given to all the people. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches his sermon and explaining the events of Pentecost. He quotes from the prophet Joel and says, uh, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, old men and, and, and young men and old women and young women. They're all going to get the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that the New Testament lesson is almost exactly the same? I, I don't know if you understand how our lectionary is organized. We read sequentially through one of the Gospels. This is year B, so we're reading through Mark. But the Old Testament lesson will jump all over the place. But it's usually chosen to fit the theme. And this theme fits perfectly. The same thing happens with Jesus and the Apostles. Some guy is casting out demons. We don't know his name. 
And the disciples hear about it, and they go to Jesus. And what do they say to Jesus? Oh, boy, this guy's been delivered. Oh, boy, this woman is no longer spiritually oppressed. Oh, boy, this person is being brought into spiritual freedom. No, they don't say that. They said, we're not in control. Make him stop. It's identical to what Joshua had said all those centuries earlier. They want to be in control of the event. One New Testament commentator, Robert Stein, comments, This may be the first time, but certainly not the last, in which ecclesiastical leaders have sought to hinder those who would minister in the name of Christ independently to their authority. In other words, Moses and Jesus are fixed focus on the big picture, the well-being of the community, what I've been calling here our common life. But other people are focused on other things. We don't care about our common life. We care about our authority, our, authority, our prestige. Now this misdirection of attention happens all the time in the Bible and in church history. I want to show you what it looks like when we get it right. Do you recall that incident in John chapter 3 when John, who has been baptizing very successfully, drawing in the crowds, his disciples come to him and they say, Master, we're losing it. Our numbers of attendance are down. Our number of giving is down. Momentum is down. They're all going to that guy downstream. Jesus and his disciples. And they're getting the crowds and they're getting the money and they're getting the attention. What are we to do? And John speaks the word that we need for this lesson. He says, he, that is Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. John's focus is on the well-being of the kingdom of God. And if the movement of that kingdom is shifting toward Jesus, then that's just fine. I remember when I was interviewed for a church in Pittsburgh, we were down to two candidates, and it was a combination of the search team and the vestry which were interviewing me at Fox Chapel, and uh, one Pittsburgh businessman looked over at me and he says, well, Brad, I just want to say that, you know, if we call you to be rector of our church here, you got your competition cut out for you. And I said, really? That's interesting. Uh, and who's my competition? He said, well, if you go down the road here, Powers Run Road, you got the Presbyterians, they have 300 members. And if you go the other way, you come around the corner and you come to the Methodist Church, they got 500 members. Presbyterian Church down Aspenwall has 500 members. And Fox Chapel Presbyterian Church has 2,100 members. And I said, and that's my competition? You know, my job was somehow to be better than those people. I said, if I'm counting the numbers right here, it adds up to 3,200 Christians. We live in a borough of 7,600 people. So if you subtract that out, it equals 4,400 people. It seems to me my competition is really those people who aren't going anywhere. You know, I, I'm in competition with the guy in the red pajamas and the pitchfork. I'm in competition with the flesh, the world, and the devil. That's my competition. And this man looked up at me like, well, you don't get it, do you? But one woman was sitting there, and she looked at me, and she goes, you get it. And she just smiled. Uh, yeah, who is our competition? 
I'm not in competition with Assemblies of God or Baptists or Roman Catholics or Presbyterians or Methodists. Now, please understand me. I'm an Anglican. I love being an Anglican. I love our Book of Common Prayer. I love to worship the way I do with the liturgy that is shaped by the centuries all the way back to the first century. I love our ethos as Anglicans. I love our hymnal as Anglicans. I love the way we are together as Anglicans. But if somebody comes along and does something better than I do, well, good for them. You got a better Sunday school? Good for you. Better preaching? Good for you. Better youth group? Good for you. In that same church, I had a youth minister whose youth attendance was more than twice as much as any youth group we had had in the history of that church. Twice as much. And two women in the vestry, in a vestry meeting, said, Brad, so-and-so, he just, he, he just weird. I said, he's different. He's a bit eccentric. Well, he's just weird. I'd be embarrassed to go to the country club with him. I said, well, gosh, don't go to the country club with him. She said, we just, you know, a bunch of us are talking. We think he's weird. I go, okay. The kids love him. And I said, here's the deal for me as the rector. I can hire him, who you think you don't like, but the kids love him. Or I could hire somebody that you would love, but the kids wouldn't like him. Now you tell me which of those, which direction I need to go with that. And those two women never got the point. Again, a positive example from the New Testament. My favorite saint in the Bible, Barnabas. Come up after the service, tell me who your favorite saint is. Mine is Barnabas. And in the year 43 AD, there was rumors that things funny were going on up there in, in Antioch, Syrian Antioch. I mean, they got Gentiles coming in church. Now, I'm not complaining about Gentiles. Some of my best friends are Gentiles. <laughs> but they eat funny and they aren't circumcised, and they don't have those curly locks. Jesus probably had the curly locks to say that he was in opposition, it was political protests against Roman occupation, and they're not doing any of that stuff. And they're a majority on the vestry up there. I mean, we gotta get that under control. So the apostles in Jerusalem say, okay, let's send a delegation up there to sort it out. They send Barnabas to go up there. Barnabas goes up and he checks it out. He is described as Luke, as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And then in verse 23 of chapter 11, it says, And when he came and saw the grace of God, watch for it, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Now, don't rush through that passage. Most people rush through it and say, okay, let's get on to where something's happening. Something big just happened and you missed it. He was glad. Because most Christians, in my experience, will see the grace of God in a situation which isn't comfortable to them, and they're not glad, they're angry. Because they didn't do it my way. And we've got to stop here and ask the question, why? Why do people resist the grace of God? I think there's three reasons. Number one, jealousy. They're jealous for the old ways. You know, uh, uh, Joshua was jealous for Moses. Moses says that. Are you jealous for me? The disciples of John the Baptist were jealous for John the Baptist. His numbers were going down. There's people who were jealous for the good old ways of Jewish tradition, and they ain't doing that up there in Antioch. We celebrate when God acts. 
but within our agenda and our traditions and our respected ways. But God should not change the agenda. Well, he does. Number two, I think we're jealous for ourselves. We say we're jealous for someone else and something else, but I think a lot of the time what's behind it is good old pride. You are showing me up. I, I, I'm thinking of Joshua there with Moses. And he says he's jealous for Moses, but could he also be jealous because Eldad and Medad are showing signs of leadership and growth, and maybe they're going to outshine Joshua, and he won't be number two anymore. He'll be number three or four. Or again, looking in the New Testament story, the apostles were jealous of the unnamed exorcist who cast the demon out, and they say to Jesus, stop it. But earlier in that same chapter, chapter 9 of Mark, the disciples try to do an exorcism and they fail. But this guy succeeded. He's showing us up. So maybe it's a little bit of personal jealousy, good old-fashioned pride. Or we could think of the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 11. You know the story. They're in the house and Jesus is teaching. It says Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. By the way, don't miss that detail. To say that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus doesn't mean she was on the living room rug and just happened to be sitting in front of Jesus. The expression to sit at the feet of a rabbi means that you are officially enrolled as a disciple of that rabbi. Mary was officially enrolled as a disciple of Jesus, and she was a woman. She was officially being acknowledged in front of this group as a disciple. And here comes Martha to take her down a peg, or two, or five. And she criticizes him in front of the group. Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now notice what she's doing there. She's triangulating. She's going to Jesus to shame Mary publicly in front of all the... Jesus, you tell her to do this, but it's being done in front of the crowd. Mary could have gone to her, but this is manipulative. And is it possible that what's motivating Martha here is that Mary has been given this dignity, but Martha for some reason has been left out? Jesus calls her on it. He says, she has chosen the better part. I think the third reason that people do this is just some folks just like to be in control. They like to be in charge. They don't care what happens as long as they're the ones who make it happen. You know, nothing happens in this office unless it goes over my desk with my signature. Because I said so is the watchword of these people. You know, Eldad and me, Dad, weren't there, and I say they are not included. Why? Because I say so. Boy, the history of that in the church is iniquitous. Thomas Aquinas, in his section when he writes on pride, introduces a word to the moral vocabulary of Christian moral understanding. It's the phrase libido dominandi. You recognize the word libido. It means a desire. It means a burning desire. It's not a sexual desire necessarily. In this case, it's not sexual at all. It's a desire dominandi. It comes from the word dominate. Dominus, Lord, it is a desire to be in charge. 
And that goes on in the world, but it goes on in the church too. And Jesus warns about it. He who is greatest among you is least of all. Don't you do that. Gentiles do that. Don't you do that. But people do it all the time in the church. Two quick illustrations for that. One is from the 7th century in England. There was a fusion or a confusion between Celtic Christianity moving across northern England, and they were converting everyone. The whole kingdoms were converting to Christ. But then you had Roman Christianity come up from Rome. It has led the mission by Augustine, later first Archbishop of Canterbury, and there's a confusion between them. They didn't do things the same way. What do you do when you don't do things the same way? You can sit down and sort it out, or you can agree to disagree, or you can just grind your teeth and get mad, which is what they did. One of the things they did differently was how to baptize people. One side said, you baptize people once for each of the name of the Trinity. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The other side said, no, you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say, who cares? They got baptized. But these people literally went to war over that. Or there's how to cut your hair as a monk. The Romans had the, what was called the Roman tonsure. It's supposed to reproduce the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. So you cut the bowl on top and you cut it down here below and it looks like a crown of thorns. But the monks followed the, the Druid way of cutting the hair for monks, which is to take from here going forward and totally shave the head, and then here back, you grew it as long as you want, and you could go halfway down your back. Now, as long as you're a good monk and you say the office and you pray for people, again, who cares? They not only wouldn't unite and receive communion together because they couldn't disagree on that, but they called one another heretics because of that. That's libido dominandi. It's my way or I will crush you. I'm leaving out the illustration of the Lawlers, but it's really good. I close with this illustration. One of my favorite Anglicans ever, George Whitfield, together with John and Charles Wesley, those three fellows reached the working class. They reached the lower middle class. They reached the poor. On one occasion, George Whitfield was in Bristol, and there was a coal mine there, and it was just an open mine. It was just a big conical thing that came down, several stories. And they would go in, and they would get the coal and bring it out and haul it up. And these men, they had blackface. They were in there and just covered with uh, the coal dust. Whitfield brought a choir and sang. People brought their meals and came out to have their sack lunch and listen to the music. And then he preached. And he told these people about the love of God for them. God loves the rich people, but he loves you too. And Jesus died for your sins, and your sins can be forgiven. And you can have the promise of heaven. And you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in newness of life. And your lives can change. And they, they changed. And they were weeping. And people testified they could see the streams running through the coal dust on their face. And attendance increased, we have the records of this, all over the Bristol area as these people went back to church. And what did the Bishop of Bristol do when that happened? He called George Whitfield in and he said, thank you for doing that, that was great. Would you teach my priest and my diocese how to do that? No, he didn't do that. He said, 
I am withdrawing your license to preach. You may not preach anywhere in my diocese, and if you attempt to do so, I will have you put in jail, arrested, and maybe left in prison for a long time. He wants to be in charge. So I think what me dad and Eldad hold up to us is a picture of people who sometimes aren't doing things the way we like them, with a different culture, with a different style, with sometimes different rules or emphasis. But it belongs to the kingdom of God, which we pray for every day. If you say the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, then Eldad and me dad, you come too and you bring your blessings. And when we see them, we need to say, thanks be to God, and may the whole world be blessed because of you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.